You are listening to the teaching ministries of Southwest Church, located in the heart of Springboro, Ohio, at 150 Remick Boulevard, beside the Kaufman Family YMCA. Please visit our website at www.southwestchurch.org. Thank you for joining us for this week's message from student minister Andrew Beal. Bye, and the brothers met to reveal what they had learned. I have mastered a science, said the first, by which I can take but a bone of some creature and create the flesh that goes with it. I, said the second, know how to grow that creature's skin and hair if there is flesh on its bones. The third said, I am able to create its limbs if I have flesh, the skin, and the hair. And I, concluded the fourth, know how to give life to that creature if its form is complete. Thereupon the brothers went into the jungle to find a bone so they could demonstrate their specialties. And as fate would have it, the bone they found was a lion's. One added flesh to the bone, the second grew hide and hair, the third completed it with matching limbs, and the fourth gave the lion life. Shaking its mane, the ferocious beast arose and jumped on his creators. He killed them all and vanished contentedly into the jungle. And that's the end of the story. We might call it a parable. Usually Jesus, you know, he didn't quite give away his answers to parables all that much, but here's the point of that story. Here's the giveaway. All of us have the ability to choose and even create what can destroy us. We all have that ability. We all have that power to find something that will bring us down. And they're not always bad things. They can be dreams. They can be aspirations. They can be life goals, you know, things on our bucket list. They can be relationships that we have. They can be things that we want. They can be property that we hold or want to hold one day. And when it comes to having this ability, this, you know, very, very human ability to choose and even create what's going to destroy us, they can destroy us very quickly or our, uh, these items, we'll call them idols, they can destroy us over years and years, even decades. They can destroy us very slowly. Again, we're in the world of idols today, you know, kind of the second commandment is where we're going to be. We're going to be setting up camp. Uh, but any time that we want something, any time that we have an addiction, any time we, you know, really, really want something, it can be a good thing, it can be a bad thing. So there's no, you know, categories here for that. Um, But I'm of the opinion that as we go about our days, maybe not consciously and maybe not every day, but there's a theme to everyone's life, I think, where I think all of us are after some sort of hope. We're all after something to kind of fill our hearts, to fill our souls. There's this hunger in there that's always hungry and it has an appetite and we want to give in to that appetite. And again, sometimes we give it good things, sometimes bad things, but we always have this something that we want. And I'm comfortable this morning calling that hope, this, this expectant desire that there's something more for us. You know, C.S. Lewis has this quote out there that if I can't find anything in this world that will satisfy my heart, then I must not be made for this world. Uh, so kind of with that idea in mind, I think we're all after this hope that eventually where we're arrive at is that only Jesus can deliver. This assurance, this, you know, hunger that can only be satisfied in him and in him alone. So we're in this series called From the Mountain. It's week two. I got the privilege of kicking it off last weekend. And this four-week series, we are looking at the first four of the Ten Commandments that are given in Exodus 20. Now, one reason that we decided to kind of go this route, we're going to cover all Ten Commandments over the course of the summer. We're going to take a break in July. Uh, But one reason is we might need to give a second, more accurate look at these Ten Commandments. Because even when we hear that phrase, Ten Commandments, if you're anything like me, you just kind of want to push it away, even take a step back. 
because even that phrase, it has a stigma to it because, you know, no one likes to be commanded to do anything. We hear 10 commands, we hear 10 rules, 10 very rigid rules, and it just seems unattractive to us. So at the staff level, we thought, hey, this might warrant a closer look because we want to do away with the idea that, you know, there's this condescending deity in the sky who parts the clouds and has his pointy finger come down and just so disappointed us all the time. We want to do away with that because that is not accurate. If you were here last week, it, was, it gets to be kind of like a review, but if you weren't, here's kind of how we looked at it. We looked at the first commandment last week of, you know, God not wanting any other gods before him. He doesn't want to share. And the, really the most accurate, the real look at this, the holy look at this, is it's not so much that, you know, demeaning, condescending God. It's really the better picture is it's more like a groom pursuing his bride and entering into this marriage union that's founded solely on love. And hopefully, as we look at each of these uh, commandments, we're going to see that behind it, it's not this uh, desire for God to control us. It's uh, him saying, hey, I love you so much, and if you obey this, then you're going to be in a whole lot better shape, not only with yourself and other people, but also with me, if you believe what I say and you stay away from this. It's a measure of protection against us. It is a, it is a showing of God's love and, 100, you know, and nothing else, nothing else besides love. So last week, kind of the bottom line was God wants to hold the most important place in your life. That's where we ended last weekend. And this morning, where I want to end is uh, we're going to see what happens when we don't let God have that spot, when we keep pushing him to the side and letting something else or many things take his spot, the damage that can do. Here's our bottom line where we're going to end with, so we're kind of giving it away. Uh, This hope that we're all after, I'm going to say that everyone here, everyone, even not in this room, but everyone can have a greater hope in Jesus by turning their backs on small gods. That's the title of the message this morning, small gods. We'll call them idols. We're going to see these in Exodus 20. So uh, we're going to read Exodus 20, verses 1 through 6. We'll be in some other verses, but here's kind of home base. Uh, Here are the first six verses, even a recap from last week. Then God gave the people all these instructions. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other gods but me. That was last week. And he continues. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. So what exactly are they talking about in this time in history? They're talking about idols and they're talking about graven images, which really don't have these today, but graven image, just think of, you know, some God that's, you know, carved out of or chiseled out of wood or of stone or even of some sort of, even some sort of metal. Now, one thing that we kind of recap from last week is where the Israelites have been, these people, God's chosen people that he is talking to, that these commandments are for. Uh, They've been out in the desert for two to three months now, but before that, they were enslaved in Egypt, and they were enslaved there for a number of centuries. So generation after generation after generation, all they know is how to be a slave. They don't know how to be their own people, and as far as worshiping and following gods, all they know is what they had going on in Egypt. And Egypt, my gosh, they had God after God after God after God. If there was some item, even a season, is such as some object, there was a God for it. And the way that the Egyptians worshipped or honored them was there were statues, there were idols all over the place. 
So these people, the Israelites, if they're starting from the ground up and they're like, okay, well, we have a God now, the only God, apparently, because monotheism, only one God, was also a foreign concept to them. If they're like, hey, how are we going to worship him? They would have thought, oh, we just make an idol. We just make something that represents God. And that would just been their innocent view of that's just how you worship. So God's teaching them, hey, that thing that you saw for centuries, don't do that. That's not what I want. That lessens me. That's disrespectful to me. That takes away from who I am and who I want to be for you. So he says, don't make anything like this. Just, you know, nothing in heaven, on earth, just no representation of any God. Even me, don't make a physical representation. Now, when I was doing my study, I was kind of looking at, even though I'm not preaching on all ten, I like, you know, looking at everything in one book in context. And I was like, so if you look at all ten commandments, uh, a few of them, most of them, they're just a very simple, hey, don't do this or avoid this or do this. So it's like, honor your father and mother. That's in a couple weeks. Simple to the point, very clear. And even last week, don't have any other God but me. Straight, you know, could not be clear, could not be more to the point. But the second one, God goes on for a paragraph. He has a number of sentences. So I'm thinking, why is God so specific here? Why is he a little more long-winded? Why is he more detailed? Why is he kind of couching this with, hey, just, just listen to what I'm saying. Why are there so many stipulations to this? And I think, I don't know, but I think the reason God is so specific here is because I think God knew that this may have been the area that the Israelites might have the most trouble with. I think God knew that if they were going to rebel or kind of go against what he had for them in any particular way, is they're going to naturally want to put idols in my place. They're going to want want to replace me with pretty much anything, just the nature of being human. And I think that might be the case for us today. If I'm making vast generalizations, one thing we're very good at is setting up our own idols. Now, no, we don't you know, carve things out of wood or stone for ourselves, but we have things that kind of take that place. We all know what it means to have an idol or to put something in front of God. And it can be any number of things. Here in a moment, we're going to learn about it or hear about a guy who was like money and wealth for him. But it can be anything for us. It can be approval. It can be things. It can be status. You know, pick anything. I remember, you know, it's Father's Day, so I'm thinking about dad and all that. I remember when uh, the idea of wealth or money stopped being like an area of idol, idolization for me. Not that I was worried about it, but if there's anything, uh, you know, there's that verse, you know, the love of money is the root of all evil. I totally believe in that. But I remember the moment where that kind of stopped being a thing for me. Now, full disclosure, I have like four or five other things that can comfortably take the place of idol in my life. Just money and stuff isn't one of them. But I remember I was probably in college, something like that, and me and my older brother, Matthew, we were going to go deer hunting with Dad. And we had our licenses, but you can buy a permit. You can buy a permit for, you know, the deer with antlers or antlerless. They don't have a buck and doe in Indiana because from a distance you can't tell what's what. So antler or antlerless. And they were $25 each, and, you know, I'm poor, college student, all that. And I'm like, Dad, I can't decide. He says, you don't know what you're going to see, you know, out there on the trailer in the field. Should I get antler or antlerless? And Dad says, and it's just this offhand comment. You know, and it's a wonder I even remember this. But all Dad said was, "Hey, you may as well get both. After all, it's only money." Just some offhand comment, just easily forgettable. But for whatever reason, just because Dad said it, and families matter, and we learn things from moms and dads. For whatever reason, just based on Dad's philosophy of money, ever since then, for whatever reason, money has not been an idol for me. Not say that it won't in the future. I hope it won't, but. I can remember, like, just that offhand comment just because Dad said it. May as well get both. It's only money. There are any 
number of other areas that we can get, like, you know, our idols. Sometimes it's possessions. Sometimes it's other people. Uh, this guy, Henry Now, he's getting a couple shout-outs. One, again, one of my favorite authors. But he kind of went through one time, hey, what are some areas where we just falsely get our identity? One thing we want to know, we want, is that we want to have our identity fully as a follower of Jesus, and anything, you know, insecure on our end can be made whole in God alone. So he's like, hey, there's some areas that we commonly have as far as, hey, where do we get our identity just from, you know, places that we shouldn't. Uh, He says, some of us, you know, we get our identity in what we do, Um, be that our actions or even our careers. That's kind of where our sense of self-worth comes from. Some of us, like, it's all about careers. Some of us are borderline or just full-out workaholics. We'll talk about that a little bit later, what happens when that becomes your idol. Uh, This guy also says that uh, sometimes our idol or we get identity, it comes from just what other people say about us. This is where I, I, thought I, was, I thought I was like clear of this personally for a while, but I realized like, no, it's very important to me whatever my reputation is. And sometimes like we know how to perform and we know how to, you know, put on our best selves in front of the people that matter to us. That's probably one for me. Just I am what other people say about me. It shouldn't be, but that's the boat many of us find ourselves in. And then some of us, uh, we kind of put our identity falsely into what we have our things, our possessions, our materials, just that's what we're all about. If I have this one thing, then I'll be whole or complete. These are maybe some areas that can, our idols can be found. I probably should have thrown this up earlier, but uh, just kind of going forward, hey, what's an idol? What are we talking about? I would love for all of us to go forward with the same understanding and definition. So this is what John Piper calls an idol. He says, what is an idol? Well, it is the thing. It is the thing loved or the person loved more than God, wanted more than God, desired more than God, treasured more than God, enjoyed more than God. Many of us seek to put or try to find our hope in idols. We don't say that out loud because out loud that sounds ridiculous, but you know, we might say the heart wants what the heart wants, even if it wants something terrible for us. So going forward, kind of where I want to leave us is I want us to be able to kind of identify some idols, maybe realize the damage that they do to us personally, uh, put them where they belong, because honestly, uh, some some things are very good things that should remain in our lives, and then they only become bad when they're an idol. So uh, maybe put these things where they belong, and also we'll kind of end with, hey, how do we replace them with Jesus? So that's where we're going. Identify, realize the damage, put them where they belong, replace with Jesus. So as far as identifying them, I was just scrolling through Twitter this week, and I just happened to come across this tweet from Christian author uh, Caitlin Beatty. And she said this. He says, she said, you can sniff out an idol when they promise to give you something that only God can. You can sniff out an idol when they promise to give you something that only God can. I love that. That's a great way to start identifying, hey, what might be an idol in my life? Years ago, I heard this idea of this thought that kind of goes along with that, just this idea that we make decisions based on the most important things in our life. Or maybe to rephrase, we make our decisions based on the most important relationship in our life. And, you know, sometimes that's a spouse, sometimes that's our children, which those are great relationships. We should be making some of those decisions. But also, we know how to be selfish, and, you know, we can sometimes spot selfish people. Like we know, here's a good diagnostic uh, that I learned years ago. If you were to look at someone's bank account as far as their discretionary spending goes, once it's all, you know, been spent on bills and things like that, the way they spend their money on things that they want, that can be an indication of maybe where an idol or a small god uh, might be for, for them. Just some good diagnostic tools for us. Uh, In Mark 10, there's this guy who Jesus was able to identify very quickly maybe what his idol was. 
And this is something that we can probably all relate to on some level. I talked with, it, uh, with my small group this last Thursday night. But this is from Mark chapter 10. Here's how it goes. And as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Don't defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Here's what we see in these five or six verses. This young guy who's very excited, he seems to know who Jesus is. He seems to, just by his question, know him as Messiah, or at least a very, very good teacher. He comes as a good teacher, sign of respect. He says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? What do I got to do to spend eternity in heaven? And then Jesus throws out six of the Ten Commandments. He says, well, you know some of these laws, you know the commandments, you know, don't steal, don't lie, don't kill anyone, don't commit adultery, honor mom and dad, things like that. And the guy's like, hey, all those I have kept ever since I was a kid, I'm great at those, I'm blameless, uh, I can't be criticized. I don't think he, excuse me, I made him probably more prideful than he was. Uh, He's just saying, these I'm really, really good at, like I'm good. Now, there's something interesting about those six. You might notice that Jesus doesn't list out all ten. And we've kind of taken this idea, and we've, that's how we're dividing these uh, two series. You know, it's four weeks on, you know, from the mountain, and then two-week break, and then the back six are in the last part of July and August. And here's how this divided. The six that Jesus throws out, they only have to do with how we relate to other people. It has to do with our relationships, just us and other people, those that we're walking this earth with. The first four have entirely to do with our relationship and God, just us and God, no one else. That's what this first four is about. So as far as his relationship with other people, this rich young ruler, as he's known, he was good to go. He was a great guy. He loved people. He was generous with, you know, with his funds, I imagine. As far as his relationship with other people, he could not be criticized. But Jesus, knowing people's hearts, he knew this. And he says, hey, there's one thing you lack. And he doesn't come out and say what he lacks. But I think it's fair saying, hey, you kind of lack a solid relationship with God himself. Again, you're good with other people. You're a good person. But as far as you and God, there is something lacking there. You just probably don't have it. So he identifies the one thing that would stay in the way. This guy's wealth, his things, his money, his materials. And he says, hey, go and sell those then you'll have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. And we don't know what happens to this guy. Just this last verse, we know he goes away disheartened. You know, his face fell, his countenance fell, depending on the version. He went away heartbroken because he had many possessions. For this guy, that was one idol that he just could not give up. I hope eventually he got over it, but here we don't know how his story ends. Here he just walked away. Because that is one thing that he could not give up and let God take his rightful place. His possessions were his God. Now, this is not to say that money or things in and of itself is bad. That's just happened to be what it was for this guy. Again, it can be any number of things for us. But this guy was hungry for Jesus and eternal life, but he seemed to be more hungry for money or things. And he walked away sad. 
Here's one thing I think we can take from this. Even if you were a good person, because this guy obviously, obviously was a good person by all you know, measures of what we might understand that to be. But I would say this. Even more than being a good person, even more than serving others, you know, with your hands, with your time, with your generosity, more than doing good things, more than having, you know, spotless, you know, church attendance, just being, being here every single Sunday, more than living a life of generosity, God likes that stuff, he appreciates that, but more than anything, God wants you. More than all of that, anything you might have to offer, more than that, God wants you. But for this guy, just money got in the way. So we can get into the area of where these idols, these things that we put in God's place, they can create a lot of damage. Uh, I think it may have been this hour last week. I know I just said it in one, but I, didn't, I, don't, I know I didn't say it in all of them. But just kind of looking at you know, anything God would have for us, be they commands or just things that he would like us to live up to because he loves us and wants the best for us and wants to protect us from ourselves. Uh, I said last week that the idea of like breaking a rule uh, it doesn't keep a lot of us up at night. Like you know, some of you, some of you are just natural rule followers. I tend to be every now and again. I just have this very. I just have this need to rebel. I don't want to analyze it. That's just that's just me. You might have that disorder yourself. Just really good most of the time, but sometimes just you just got to rebel against something, anything. But most of us, like we don't get all that heartbroken over breaking a rule. And someone in my small group a couple weeks ago, he pointed out that. Uh, when it comes to these commandments, you know, these first two for us this morning, you know, like having no other gods before God himself or not having any uh, idols in our life, saying the conversation becomes a whole lot more real when we realize it's not so much breaking a rule, it's breaking the heart of God. When we realize our rebellion and our disobedience is doing nothing less than breaking God's heart, then it becomes a whole lot more real. And we start feeling that conviction, and we start feeling sorry, and we start wanting to actually do something about it. That uh, wanting to repent uh, is a whole lot more accessible. We realize if ever we go against this, we're doing nothing less than breaking God's heart as his children. If you're a parent, you know what that feels like when just, just your heart breaks for your kids for whatever reason. <clears throat> this is something from Psalms chapter 16. They say, troubles multiply for those who chase after other gods. In his letter to the Corinthians of his first letter, Paul writes this, uh, and this is several verses, but uh, the theme here is, hey, there's a warning. There's something that happens when we go after other idols. And Paul cares about the church at Corinth, and so he writes about this. Paul writes, I don't, want to, I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago, the people that Exodus 20 was for. All of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them, and all of them walked through the sea on dry ground. In the cloud and in the sea, all of them were baptized as followers of Moses. All of them ate the same spiritual food. All of them drank the same spiritual water, for they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them, and that rock was Christ. Yet God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. These things happened as a warning to us, so that we would not crave evil things as they did, or worship idols as some of them did. As the scriptures say, the people celebrated with feasting and drinking, and they indulged in pagan revelry. On to verse 10. Paul writes, And don't grumble as some of them did, and then were destroyed by the angel of death. These things happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. If you think you are standing strong, be careful not to fall. I like that one for us. I like that one for me. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. 
He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so you can endure. So, my dear friends, flee from the worship of idols. And those temptations that he talked about can easily become idols. So put them in the same boat for now. Anytime you see something phrased like that, so, or therefore, it means, hey, if you didn't catch anything I just said, here's the bottom line. He says, so, my dear friends, flee from the worship of idols. Run as fast as you can. Don't play around. Don't hesitate. Just flee in that very moment. Uh, Just thinking about this, I I happen to, my memory, and I I hope it's okay to to say this or share this. Um, I was uh, taking, it was about a year ago, maybe more, uh, I was taking a tour of an acquaintance of mine. He had a brand new house. Uh, He does not attend here. He's never been in this building, so it's no one we know. No one you know. Um, but he was you know, walking a few of us around his house, it was brand new, and from room to room there was a constant theme. Uh, he was very quick to point out that in every single room uh, it was just like the best of what money could buy, be it furniture or you know, toys or technology or the media, you know, whatever. Every single room he was quick to point out, and this is the best, and he would you know, rattle off you know, the specifics about it and just on and on and on. And you know, we get down to the basement kind of end, and then he takes us to you know, the sideboard, where he has his alcohol and liquor, which tends to not do a thing for me. I didn't partake. But even then, like, it was, like, very, very expensive stuff. And, like, he just kind of had his, you know, chest puffed out. He was just so proud. And, uh, again, I have my own stuff. Again, like, four or five and, you know, idols of my own. Just this isn't one of them. So, like, there are ways to impress me. This just isn't one of them. But my thought was, my gosh, how exhausting it must be to feel like you have to live like that to feel like you have to impress people just by accruing things. How exhausting and sad that must be. And those are all good things. Like, you know, we're allowed to have our toys. We're allowed to have nice things. It just happens to come, like, it's only a problem when it becomes an idol. Uh, some of you might know the name Tim Keller. Maybe not. I'm, you know, in my, you know, church pastor bubble sometimes, and he's a well-known preacher out in New York City. But he came up with a list, uh, and they all start out with, if you send your life and identity on fill-in-the-blank, then this might happen. And he had this list I found, and every single one of these are good so long as they're not idols, so long as they don't place them in the center of our lives, so long as we don't put them in God's place. So idols, like, they don't always start off as bad things. Sometimes they start off as good things, and we need to be just as wary of those. So let me read off this, uh, this uh, somewhat long list. Here's what he says. He says, if you center your life and identity on your spouse or partner, you will be emotionally dependent, jealous, and controlling. The other person's problems will be overwhelming to you. If you center your life and identity on your family and children, you will try to live your life through your children until they resent you or have no self of their own. At worst, you may abuse them when they displease you. If you center your life and identity on your work and career, you will be a driven workaholic and a boring, shallow person. At worst, you will lose family and friends, and if your career goes poorly, develop deep depression. If you center your life and identity on money and possessions, you'll be eaten up by worry or jealousy about money. You'll be willing to do unethical things to maintain your lifestyle, which will eventually blow your life up. If you center your life and identity on pleasure, gratification, and comfort, you will find yourself getting addicted to something. You will become chained to the escape strategies by which you avoid the hardness of life. If you center your life and identity on relationships and approval, you will be constantly overly hurt by criticism and thus always losing friends. 
you will, feel, you will fear confronting others and therefore be a useless friend. If you center your life and identity on a noble cause, which I think is admirable, you will divide the world into good and bad and demonize your opponents. Ironically, you will be controlled by your enemies. Without them, you have no purpose. If you center your life and identity on religion and morality, you will, if you are living up to your moral standards, be proud, self-righteous, and cruel. If you don't live up to your moral standards, your guilt will be utterly devastating. That's his list. The theme here being, anything can be an idol. Even really, really good things. So what do we do with these, as far as putting them where they belong? Where they belong? Paul writes this in the letter of Colossians. He says, so put to death the sinful, earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Uh, We have that do not covet command. I think it's number nine, maybe number ten. Roger will likely cover that message in August. But it's closely related to this idol thing. It can also be said, like, don't be envious of anything else. Uh, Paul says, covetousness, which is idolatry. So what idolatry looks like today is the, it all comes down to what the human heart wants. So it starts in the heart, that craving, that wanting, that enjoying, that being satisfied by anything that we treasure more than God. That is an idol. Uh, hopefully this has come through, that we are allowed to have good things. You know, there's that verse in the New Testament that says, every good and perfect gift comes from God. And God is a father, and fathers love to give gifts to their children. So I think that is true, and I think we can cling to that as a promise. So we're allowed to have our good things. But I might also throw out that most, not all, but most sinning is simply misusing what God intended for good. And we're really good at that, taking something that's really good and twisting it and using it or even abusing it in a way that God really didn't have in mind for us in the first place. That's what, you know, crafting or getting an idol for ourselves often looks like. Where they belong is in their rightful spot. Only that list kind of got us going. This comes later. Paul writes in Ephesians, You can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. For a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of this world. He seems to write this in a number of letters to all the churches. It must be something that, pe- that humans are easily drawn into. But he talks about that we don't get to inherit the kingdom. And we get, to en- we get to enjoy the kingdom here on earth as we're walking about. We get to enjoy this even now, even before we get to heaven. But we miss out on everything that Jesus has to offer and everything that kingdom living, a life that, is, uh, that has Jesus as our Lord in that number one spot when we worship other things. We miss out on the kingdom if we have other idols, if we have small gods in our life. Now, one of the hallmarks, one of the benefits of living a kingdom life is that we have hope. Uh, This eternal hope, there's this hope that anything and everything can be found in Jesus, that the human heart really wants can be found in Jesus. That is one of the grand promises of Scripture from cover to cover. But every time that we let a small God take the place of God, we're kind of giving away our hope little by little. I would say the more small gods we have, the least amount of hope that we have in return. Again, the line this morning is everyone here can have a greater hope, and that's found in Jesus, if we turn our backs on small gods. And that's a very big and that's a very important if. If we turn our back on small gods, we get more and more hope from Jesus alone. Also from Colossians. Let's take hold of this right before we do the communion thing. 
If you're on that team, that can be your cue. From Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4, Paul writes, Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth, for you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory." Here's how we replace these idols with Jesus. Here's why we kind of put them in their spots. As long as we have our eyes fixed wholly on Jesus, then these even good things that become idols, they kind of fall to their rightful spots. And we kind of get some sense of order and health in our life back. But I love the phrase, set your sights on the realities of heaven and that we have died to this life. If we call Jesus Lord and Savior, then when we did this thing over here, being immersed, we are dying to our old life saying no to small gods and saying, all right, Jesus, it is you and it is you alone. So what I want to do for us, you know, I'm going to pray and then we're going to have communion passed. And here's where I would like to turn your heart, if you don't have something particular being, uh, that's God stirring in your heart right now, if you need something, then uh, I might offer this. You know, I think I even said this last week. I probably say this a lot of times when I when I set up communion, but sometimes we just need reminders, and sometimes we just need, uh, you know, that kick in the pants. Sometimes we just need that encouragement. We just, there's any number of things that we need. So for our time for the next few minutes, if you don't have something more pressing that God's putting on your heart, uh, maybe this can guide you. Let's take a, a spiritual audit, a heart check, you know, see what is taking God's place in our hearts. If maybe he's already there, which if that's the case, great. Uh, treat this as that holy, worshipful moment that it is. But when we do this, we are allowing Jesus to take his rightful place on the, on the throne in our lives, that he alone is Lord and Savior. So with that thought uh, guiding us over the next several minutes, um, pray with me, would you? Uh, Father, you are a God who loves us, and because you love us, uh, you love um, you love truth. And uh, grace and truth are the two tools that you use to let us know that you love us, that you care about us, that you want us as close to you as we possibly can be. So help us look at our hearts. If there's something that we've been desiring or wanting or chasing after more than you, uh, help us to name that. Because we need to name a problem before we can deal with it. Help us label it and help us have the uh, conviction and the desire to put it where it belongs and allow you to take the throne in our lives and not share with anything else. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.